In our study of essential doctrines on Sunday morning, we're currently studying the doctrine of rewards. And it's important for us to understand this this doctrine. It'll clear up a lot of confusion that there might be when you read that there are some things that a Christian can clearly lose from Scripture. And some falsely understand those passages to mean that you can lose your salvation once you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. But when you understand the doctrine of rewards, you understand that that that's not true, that the Bible teaches that salvation, eternal life, is a gift and not a reward, not something that's earned, not something that's maintained by our good works, but something that was accomplished and paid for fully on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. I stand accepted before my Creator based on what Jesus did for me on the cross, simply by receiving the gift of salvation, the grace of God. But we also discovered that as a Christian, once we are born again, that now we have a a life to live. We have a service to render. We have a race to run. All of these analogies are used by the Apostle Paul to tell us that this Christian life that we live in this life as we anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look forward to that that home in heaven that is ours because of what Jesus did on the cross, while we are here, we have a life that we are responsible for, that we have to learn to continue to walk in the grace of God that will teach us how to live godly. We're not saved just to escape hell someday. We are now the servants of the Most High God. We are His children. We represent Him, His values, His righteousness. And our life and our actions, our words, should reflect that as a child of God. And so when we begin to consider that reality, that truth that the Bible teaches, we find that God has promised for those that are faithful to take advantage of what God's grace has provided for us, because all of us, if you're a child of God, you have been given freely everything you need to live a godly life. There's no excuses for us to live a life of carnality, of selfishness. We have no excuse for that. We're a new creature. We're different than we used to be before we were saved. And God's grace has provided everything you need to have God's best in this life and in eternity. And so in, it's clear that God loves all of his children equally because he's provided everything equally. But don't make the mistake of thinking that means that every child of God will have the same reward and the same inheritance and the same position in heaven because God says how you live your life will determine your place in eternity, not whether or not you're going to heaven, that was settled on the cross. When, and when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're going to heaven if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. But what's your place there? How close to the Lord Jesus Christ are you going to be? Again, we all have the ability that God has given us to be victorious in this race that we have to, to run. But clearly there's distinctions the Bible makes. Let's read a couple of them. 1 Corinthians 3.15, just so we understand what the Bible teaches about the differences that there will be in heaven because of the differences 
among Christians that there are in this life. Some dedicate their life to honoring the Lord and desiring to please the Lord in every situation. And when they fall short of that, because there are no sinless Christians in this life, there's none that are without fault. But those who, when the Holy Spirit brings that conviction that this thought or this action or these words are not appropriate for a child of God, and it brings that conviction, and then there's a response to that conviction to say what God says about it. Lord, forgive me. Teach me the new way of walking. Teach me how to think differently, how to act differently, how to speak differently. Those are the Christians that continue to grow. Again, they're not perfect. It's not that they never fail. But when they do, they apply the grace of God that puts them back on the path of righteousness. And then there are other Christians who really don't care what the Bible says. They have no interest in living a different life than what they lived before they were saved. Oh, they're glad they're going to heaven, but there's no desire. There's no seeking. God, what is your will for me in this situation, in this life? And, and because of that, because they don't seek the will of God, because they don't apply the grace of God that will teach them to live godly, what are they going to do? What other choice do they have? They're going to give in to their own selfish flesh. They're going to live a life of carnality. That's the differences that we see. And there's many degrees of these that want to, to serve the Lord with all their heart and these who just glad they're going to heaven but really don't care about anything else. There's a lot of different degrees in between that, aren't there? The Bible recognizes that. Let's read the one extreme in 1 Corinthians 3.15. If anyone's work, and we're talking about Christians, if any Christian's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. So there's the clear balance of God's grace. Clearly, we can lose something, but clearly it's not eternal life once you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. And so what's being lost here is the ability the privilege of receiving a reward for a life of faithfulness. Let's go to Second John and verse 8, where we have the other extreme. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Again, the subject is not salvation here. The subject is reward. You can lose rewards, or you can have a full inheritance. So there you see the two extremes, saved yet so as by fire, but everything else is gone. You have the foundation of eternal life, but you've wasted that life, and you didn't take the advantage to bring glory to God with a life of service. And then you have those that will receive a full reward. In our study, we've already read phrases in the, in the Bible about a workman that does not need to be ashamed We've also just read about a full reward. Peter tells us about an abundant entrance. Instead of being saved yet so as by fire, we have an abundant entrance. And then we just read those that suffer loss, saved yet so as by fire. So clearly, God makes a distinction among his children, between his children. Paul teaches us that every believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What for? To judge our works. How did you live your life? Did you take advantage of God's grace that gives you wisdom and direction 
to bring glory to him, to do his will, to share Christ with others, to be an example of the grace of God that saves us and transforms us? Or did you just wake up every morning and did whatever felt good to you, whatever was right in your sight? It matters how we live our life as Christians. Yes, we're saved by grace. I'm going to heaven. I I have no question about that. But what am I doing with this eternal life that I've been given? There are a lot of things about the giving of rewards that I don't understand. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, where we read something that, to me, it, it, it's, a, it's a sad thing to think about this, and yet it's, it's here. We know that heaven is a place of joy for all of God's children. We know that there's rejoicing, there's praise. Every, every scene that, that uh, God revealed to John in the book of Revelation, it's just one of, uh, of those that are in heaven, one of great joy, praise, and worship. So we know that will be true of all God's people. But there will be a moment for some that we read in 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, when Jesus comes, you may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Some Christians will feel shame when Jesus comes. I don't know how long that endures. Clearly, it doesn't endure for long as once they enter into heaven, there's great joy. But there's a moment of shame when we're in the very presence of the one who left heaven to come to this vile earth full of sinful men in order to to die for them, that they might have eternal life, that they might be reconciled to their, their creator. When he comes, and if I've chosen to live a life that is a reproach to him, there's going to be a moment of recognition. We know in heaven, the flesh won't enter into heaven. So even the most carnal, vile Christian that you know, they'll be in heaven without that vileness. And I believe that once that vileness is removed from them, and only Christ remains, only that new life remains, there'll be an understanding, I blew it. I wasted my life that God's grace provided for me. And there'll be that moment of shame before they enter into the joy of the Lord. I've been given a revelation of how much he loves me. I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to shame him with my life. I want to bring him honor. And then he's promised to reward that. That's the grace of God. It's infinite. The grace of God, when you truly understand it, doesn't make you want to go out, well, I'm going to heaven anyway. I'll live how I want to. I'll enjoy the pleasures of sin. No, the grace of God, when you have a revelation of God's grace, it doesn't make you want to go out and sin. It makes you fall on your face, realizing you're nothing without him and that you're everything with him. He's given you all things. You'll want to please him, that you don't feel shame at his coming. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. We are the servants of God. We are here to do his will. We are the body of Christ. He's the head. We're to do what he wants to be done in in this life. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Let a man consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We've been given this wonderful revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been entrusted with it. We've been charged to proclaim it, to share it with others. What are we doing with it? 
What's our responsibility? It is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So rewards are all about being faithful to do the will of God, to follow his instructions in the word of God. I want to be found faithful to him because he loved me. That's the only motivation that will cause you to truly render a life of faithfulness, a service of faithfulness to the Lord because you love him, because he first loved you. What, what are the actual rewards? In the natural, when you think of the word reward, it's money or possessions or a prize, power. But in God's system of rewards, it's not about things. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. We're not talking about winning things. We're talking about winning a person, a position close to him in eternity. Mark chapter 10. Let's read 35 through 45 in Mark 10. This place, this position close to Jesus Christ, it's depicted for us, described for us in various ways in Scripture, as we'll see. Principally this morning, we'll consider the crowns. But the crowns, they're just a symbol of this place, this, this position close to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. And in Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35, James and John, a couple of Jesus' disciples, they valued and esteemed the closeness of Christ, the closeness to Christ in his kingdom. They understood the value of that. Their motives may have been wrong. They may have been tainted a little bit. I don't question their love for Jesus. But there may have been a little jealousy, a little competition with the other disciples. And so Jesus had to enlighten them a little bit. But let's, let's read about what they desired and how Jesus responded to their request for that position. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that our desire? <laughs> and he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? He is a patient, loving God. And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit on one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. That's a position, right? Next to Jesus Christ. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What's he talking about? What cup did he drink from? What was his baptism? He's talking about his suffering. He's talking about his rejection. He's talking about the cross. Are you willing to be identified with me and my suffering? They said to him, we are able. That's what they boldly claimed. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. These disciples did suffer because of their identification with Jesus Christ. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Notice that Jesus does not deny that such a place exists at his side. There are those that say, no, no, that teaching of the being the sitting with Christ in his throne and the bride of Christ, that, that, that's, all, that's all fantasy. But notice that Jesus doesn't deny that that position is available and that it's given by the Father. He determines who's worthy of that position. And when the ten heard it, 
the other disciples, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Competition, jealousy. That's not how God, God's plan of rewards works. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. It's the complete opposite of how the flesh thinks, how the world operates. If you want to sit at the side of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign with him in eternity, it's not trying to be better than your brother. It's not competing and saying, well, I'm superior to you and I'm going to sit with Jesus and you're not. There's a lot of that that goes on among Christians, isn't there? But Jesus said, that's not the way. If I want to win Christ, one of the things that will be a part of my desire is to bring someone else along with me to help you win Christ, not to compete with you, but to also point you to the things that Jesus wants us to be characterized by. Verse 44, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Wow, that's quite a bitter cup, isn't it, to drink from? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see how sobering this revelation really is? Lord willing, in our next lesson, we'll focus in on, on the doctrine of the bride of Christ. Too many times among God's people, that doctrine has become something that is a source of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. We've seen it. We'd be fooling ourselves if we tried to pretend like that doesn't exist. I've seen it. But do you see how this revelation opposes that attitude completely? You want to be first? You make yourself a slave in this life. Even if it means drinking from that bitter cup of suffering because you identify with a Christ that is rejected in this world. Jesus clearly said such a place exists. 2 Timothy 2.12. Such a place will be rewarded to those who faithfully suffer with Christ because they identify with him and his ways and his will. 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Once again, this passage is twisted by many to think, oh, well, see, you can lose your salvation. He'll deny you. But again, what is the subject? It is reigning with Christ, not being saved by Christ. If we endure, endure what? That cup of suffering that comes simply because you identify with Jesus in his ways, not the world and their ways. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, if we don't put Christ first in our life now, he's going to deny us that place, just like Jesus told James and John. No, that this place is not given just for asking about it. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Sitting with Jesus in his throne in eternity as his eternal partner is not yours just because you know the doctrine. There are those that boast in knowing the doctrine of the bride of Christ, and they have no understanding of what's required to sit in that place. Jesus said it's not for the asking. 
It's for drinking the cup. It's for being willing to suffer with him. Romans eight seventeen, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen, If children, then heirs. If you're saved, you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you have an inheritance in heaven. You have eternal life. You have a home in heaven. That's your inheritance. That's the bare minimum that every child of God will have. That's those that are saved yet so as by fire. They've, they've got that basic inheritance that all of God's children have. Heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. If indeed what? This is conditional. If we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The Bible makes it clear. There's a difference between God's people, how they live, and what, how he will reward them in heaven. Very quickly, I'll go over these crowns. You can write down these uh, references. These crowns that are described for us as rewards, they are simply symbolic of this highest place in glory. When we think of a crown in the natural, that's what well, a king wears a crown or a queen. They, they, they wear the crown because that's the pinnacle of power and authority. That's what these crowns represent for the Christians in eternity. And there are several crowns that are mentioned, but they all point to the same one. In 1 Corinthians nine twenty four to 27, if you want to write that down, Paul talks about and, and gives an analogy of a runner, athletes. They all run in, in the Olympics. They run for a prize. But Paul says those prizes that they dedicate their entire life to, these professional athletes, they dedicate their entire life to win these prizes. And in, in ancient Greece, it was just a, a wreath that they wore around their head. And it perished probably within a week. Today, there's gold and silver and bronze. They last a little longer, but guess what? They're still perishable. They do it for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown, an eternal crown, an eternal place next to Jesus Christ in eternity. Second Timothy 4, 6 to 8. Here we have the crown of righteousness that the Apostle Paul said was reserved for him because he fought the good fight, he finished the race, and he kept the faith. And that crown was laid up for him. He, he, he received that assurance before he, he died. A crown of righteousness, not just the righteousness of Christ, but the pinnacle of that righteousness. Because he did these things, he was faithful to fight the good fight of faith, to run his course and to finish with joy to live his life since he knew Jesus Christ in a way that honored Christ, and he kept the faith. In James 1 and, and verse 12, we have the crown of life, the crown of life, not, e not just eternal life, but the crown of that. Also in Revelation 2.10, the crown of life is mentioned there, for faithfulness unto death. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, Peter talks about, a crown of glory that's reserved for faithful pastors. But you say, well, what's that got to do with me? Well, in Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42, Jesus said those that honor prophets and receive them in the name of the Lord will receive the reward of a prophet. So I, could, I believe that this crown of glory representing that same place, it's offered to pastors that are faithful, 
but it's also offered to all of God's people, a crown of glory. When you think of these crowns, an incorruptible crown, eternal, every child of God possesses the imperishable, the incorruptible seed of the very life of Christ. We all have that incorruptible seed, but the crown represents the pinnacle of what that life can bring you, provide for you. Every believer has been made the righteousness of God. Every Christian, by the grace of God, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But the crown of that is to sit with Jesus in his throne. We've all been given life in the promise of glory. But the crown of life, the crown of glory, represents this place that James and John desired. And Jesus said was going to be given by God to some but not to everyone, not just for asking. Revelation 4.4, a couple of passages here to close. Let's read Revelation 4.4. We serve him because we love him. It's not that we seek reward. We understand we deserve nothing, absolutely nothing. But to understand the faithfulness of God to do his will. For me, knowing all of my weaknesses, knowing all of my tendencies, for me to be able to receive This place so close to Jesus Christ will bring the greatest glory to the Lord Jesus Christ to say, he'll put me on display one day and say, do you see what my grace did in the life of Doug? Not what Doug did, but what God's grace did in me, through me, and for me. I want to bring him that glory. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to bring him reproach. I want to obtain to the highest place in glory. That's not arrogance. Do you know what arrogance is for a child of God to say, I don't care? I just want to barely get into the gates of heaven. That's arrogance. I want to bring him glory. This is why we read in Revelation 4.4, those that represent those Christians that will be the closest to Christ in heaven. This is what John saw. These were the ones that were in and around the throne, the closest to him in heaven. Oh, the heaven was full of individuals and all of them were praising the lamb, all of them. But these individuals, these groups that represent the faithful that lived a life of faithfulness in this life, this is what Their attitude was around the throne were 24 thrones and on them and on the thrones. I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns. Where'd they get those crowns? Remember, they were promised, weren't they? And they had crowns of gold on their head. Let's jump down to verses nine and 11. Revelation four. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy. Not look at me. I'm better than everybody else. No, you, the lamb, this is about Jesus Rewards are about a person, about Jesus Christ. This is why rewards should matter to you, because it's about Jesus. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. I want a crown, saints, so I can cast it at his feet and say, you are worthy. You did this for your glory.
Do you see why it's important to understand this doctrine? It's not cold. It's not just a theory. It's what Jesus saved me for. It's why he loved me. If you'll jot down Philippians, familiar passage for many of us. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 14. Read this later to understand that this is what Paul is talking about when he says, I want to win Christ. He's not saying, I want to be saved. He's saying, I want to win Christ. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering that I might win Christ. Even if it costs me everything else that the world has to offer, power, wealth, education, all of that stuff that the world just says, this is real power. Paul had all of that. And he says, you know, in comparison to what Jesus offers me, that's just rubbish. It's garbage. I want to win Christ. This is what he's talking about. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus gave all for me. Can you try to imagine, and we we can't even get close, the sinless Son of God, first of all, even coming to this planet so contaminated by sin, and then being willing to suffer the torture of the cross, because he looked beyond the cross and its suffering, and he saw me. This is the revelation that conquered my heart as a teenager. Jesus looked beyond all of that suffering that was real, and he saw me, and he found joy in me. I don't comprehend that, but I believe it. And he did what he did because he loved me. Saints, how can we do anything less? How can we do anything less? Look at him. Look what he's promised. And then run. Endure the suffering. It will come. But you'll never suffer alone. And then we have that promise. The suffering of this present time. It's not worthy to be compared with the glory that, that shall be revealed. Not just to us, but in us. Let's have a song.